Hi, my name is Isaac, lead pastor at New Hope Foursquare Church. Thanks for checking out our podcast. Our Sunday services are at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. Find out more at www.inewhope.org. Well, it is good to be back with you. Again, my name is Isaac, if you weren't in here when I introduced myself a few minutes ago. Um, Last week, I was gone. I was down in Cresswell with my parents who have pastored Cresswell Faith Center for a four-square church in Cresswell, south of Eugene, for 31 years, and it was their last service. So I got the chance to listen to my dad preach his last sermon, um, which is great. It's all about Peter and getting in the water with Jesus, getting out of the boat, and it was, it was really good. Um, but then there was a, a community-wide celebration uh, thanking my parents for their 31 years of service. It was so good to be there and to be able to honor them. Um, but as Danya mentioned, it's so good to be back here with you. We've, we've been here, we're rounding the bend towards two years and more and more and more. This just feels like home and we hope that you feel the same. So yeah, ushers, would you come forward? And we'll receive our tithes and offerings. Thank you, ushers, for your uh, faithful service. And thank you for giving. When we give, we declare, God, you are my provider. And we also declare, God, your mission through the church is of utmost importance. And so I walk in obedience to participate with that mission and to declare that you are my provider alone. So let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to give, to declare just that. I pray that you would um, give myself and the council wisdom as we steward the resources of the church, the finances of the church. And would you, as you promised to do, bless every person that gives, meet every need that is here in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, last week, Chris Bowlby finished our series around our true friend, the Holy Spirit out of John 14. Um, And we took some time to talk about the Holy Spirit leading us out of spiritual orphanhood. And Chris... Thank you. You did a fine job. (laughs) Thanks for the water, too. Chris really did an excellent job. If if you weren't here last week, you need to connect with the podcast to listen to that final final installment as Chris did just a really, really good job um, with that. So also a note, this is our summer series. I am a church member. We're reading this every week together. Um, We sold out this morning of the books, but we are taking orders. And after the message this morning, if you haven't got this yet, you may feel that you need to get it to stay connected with what we are going through um, this summer. So we're taking it one week at a time. And this morning's uh, message will have some to do, uh, well, have a lot to do with the content of that book. So, well, being away a little bit, I got a chance to... Um, be at the beach for a few days with my kids. Um, Donya was finishing her master's degree class, so that's how she spent the first week of our vacation, was finishing her master's degree class. And uh, man, with my kids on the beach, it was sunny, we were in seaside, and the sunshine was you know, glinting off the water. My kids were all playing in the, we- the weeds, the waves. <laughs> the water was a balmy 50 degrees. <laughs> yeah. It was cold, but I felt a lot colder on the Oregon coast. And my kids were all getting along and just thought, man, Jesus is real, you know? And so, yeah. And it was one of those moments um, of just delight. I, I felt okay with myself in that moment. 
I'm like you, I, I carry regret, I can carry shame, I can carry worry at times. And it was just one of those moments where I was just admiring God's beautiful Pacific Ocean. And I was just admiring, his, and I thought, oh, all is as it should be. I was drawn into my imagination, my, my deepest desires for peace, for love, for unity, connection with myself, with others, with my creator. C.S. Lewis, a Christian writer, he remarked that these unmet desires are indicators that we are created for eternity. We're created for something much bigger than just this. Each of us experiences whispers and fleeting moments of delight. But our appetites for these things are not yet fulfill, are not fulfilled. In a, world, in a world still broken, we long, but we don't receive everything. You know what I'm talking about. It can be challenging to live with this disappointment. We have these hopes or aspirations, these things that we long for, and yet it's not quite fulfilled here. Now, it's frustrating. It is what I would call the life of faith, the life of hope. It is recognizing that for the Christ follower that we are created for eternity, for something beyond. And there are moments where we experience heaven now, but also we live in this perpetual leaning into what is not yet, but yet we still live on. That's your journey. It's mine too. Jesus affirms particularly in the Gospel of John, that we are created for eternal life, ongoing life. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that we will be given immortal bodies that will be resurrected one day. Through Jesus, we will ultimately find what we have always been looking for. We will ultimately find this peace and this hope and this serenity. We will find it through him. And particularly to our series this summer, he has entrusted that message of hope through the imperfect church. His church. We are the carriers of this hope. Now, we know if you've been around for a while that we trust the word of God. But I'll remind you, or perhaps it's informing you, that this canon of scripture was not fully completed until the fourth century. Previous to that, tradition was passed down through the church, through these fragments of, of letters and these gospels, but the hope was born and resided within the church. This is where, this is the task that we have to carry, that we are the carriers of the hope of Jesus. So as we begin this morning, I, I want you to realize again that we, imperfect you, imperfect me, are chosen by his grace to express God's grace, his truth, his love to the world at large, and it is a huge entrustment. It is monumental in its significance. And so it is also one of the primary targets of the enemy of our soul, the churches and our involvement with it. The enemy of our soul seeks to destroy you and I. 
He is out to totally malign the witness of a good God into the world through you and I. And so he wants to press you away from the church to isolate you, to convince you that your relationship with God is just between you and him and does not necessitate or need a church. It's at your convenience or what a church particularly has to offer is the only reason that you would engage. That is the lie of the enemy. That is not a biblical conception of what the church is and individual's relationship with. The enemy's ploys are so devious. We are lured easily into traps that he has set from, for us to keep us from doing our part to carry out the mission of Jesus which will always be carried out through the church. In order to illustrate and to help us to feel this, I, I want to invite you into a moment of imagination with me. We'll prognosticate into the future, fictionally, of course, but I think you'll see the relevance. Donnie and I were just talking last week about the apparent bubble of the housing market that we are riding right now. Just last week, a uh, friend from Cottage Grove posted a Facebook post asking if there were any decent homes for, less, for rent for less than $2,000 a month in Cottage Grove. The median income in Cottage Grove is $36,000 a year. And so the reality for many families to just rent a three bedroom, two bath house, have having to pay two thirds of their annual income to be able to live in the house suggests a bit of a housing bubble. Now I'm no economist and so please critique me afterwards if you would like. But home values have skyrocketed. You know, this happened recently. We remember the recession of 2008. <laughs> Wasn't that fun? <laughs> no, nobody laughed because it's still not fun. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Let's imagine, what if the economy crashed? What if you went from living fairly well and comfortably, being able to pay your bills and keep up, to having almost nothing? Imagine yourself in standing in line at a soup kitchen. Using our imaginations, let's take it a step further. After a violent swirl of large-scale war, imagine that America has been brought to its knees by an axis of power against us. Imagine the American flag being trampled on and Americans becoming the laughingstock of the civilized world. Imagine this, Washington, Idaho, Montana, the Dakotas, Minnesota, Michigan are now Canadian provinces, given over to Canada in an unfair treaty. It may seem laughable, but can you imagine with me what that would feel like? Hopelessness, despondency, despair, a broken economy, a broken world, and it seems to be getting worse. Now imagine with me that religious freedoms have been limited. Churches are no longer tax exempt and preachers are accountable to the state for their words. Finally, imagine with me a charismatic political leader rising up in the middle of that, beckoning you to rise with him to reestablish American dignity. 
with passion, verve, and resolve that you, you, you wish that you had. This leader reminds you of the days of American prominence and superior ideals. Even though his zeal has you wondering about consequences, you find yourself enamored with the possibility of the rebirth of the true America again. Months and then years go by with the rhetoric of this leader. It's reaping results. The economy is rebounding. America is beginning to grow strong again. But now, what seemed like the simple reclamation of what America was is now laced with hateful racial rhetoric and wars of vengeance. What I've just described is the landscape of Germany in the 1920s and 1930s, leading up to World War II. We know what happened next. Charismatic, charming, but ruthless and evil, Adolf Hitler captured the nationalistic imaginations of the German people, and they followed him willingly to brutal war and mass genocide. As we look back in history, we have to ask the question, who should have stood up against militarism, against hate, against unbridled nationalism? The church should have. That's who. But the church is weak. The church had lost its sense of what was most important. They had become enamored with the values of German nationalism and the rights of the German people in the midst of Europe. And so the church even took on the values of Hitler. You can look back and find pictures of cathedrals and Protestant churches all across Germany that were draped with Nazi flags, the altars and the podiums. Why? Because the importance of their national agenda had transcended who Jesus was. In 1834, a German poet by the name of Heinrich Heine saw that the symbol of the cross of Jesus Christ, this is 100 years before this all broke out, was, he called it a magical talisman, was, was holding back the vengeance of the German people, that the cross of Christ was keeping them at bay. He wrote in 1834, should the subduing talisman, the cross, break, then will come roaring forth the wild madness of the old champions, the insane berserker rage of which the northern poets sing. That talisman, the cross, is brittle. And the day will come when it will pitifully break. And then the old stone gods will rise from the long forgotten ruin and rub the dust of a thousand years from their eyes. And Thor, leaping to life with his giant hammer, will crush the Gothic cathedrals. He was far more prophetic than he knew. Because we know now what happened to the subduing power of the cross. It was broken into the image of the Hockenkrohs, or broken cross, 
or swastika, as we call it now. And violent, vengeful, hateful fury was, unle was unleashed upon the world. Where was the church? At the time of Germany's desperation, the pleas for Christ and his mercy were, seemed to be irrelevant, archaic. His forgiveness, Jesus, who was crucified on the cross and while he's being crucified, said, Father, forgive them. His pleas and modeling of nonviolence were totally lost, seeming too small, too unimportant, too archaic to be heard in the midst of the resounding din of German pride and the promises of a great future. These promises that were too tantalizing even for the church. Edwin Lutzer surmises in his book, it's called Hitler's Cross. If you want more information about this, great perspective. He, he summarizes, he says, the church in Germany appeared to be too occupied with the problems of the nation to see what was happening before their very eyes. The religion of blood and soil had replaced the religion of humility in prayer. Though burdened with unemployment and the physical hardship of its dejected people, the church, for the most part, still refused to repent and turn wholly to God. They had been fooled by the enemy and so lived a life that saw in peril and parallel the health of the church, the health of the German nation, meaning the same thing. And so gave themselves over to unthinkable acts. See, we tend to think that our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren will inherit the prosperous and relative ease of the last century here in America. We tend to think that they're going to have the luxurious landscape of religious freedom and financial ease upon which to build their faith. And so faith seems somewhat incidental in the American life. But I would like to suggest to you that we live in a total anom anomaly within human history. The, the freedoms that we have because of our prosperity are very unlike what most of history has lived with. And so I think we should anticipate something different in the future. I'm not here as a doomsayer, but I am here to underline the importance of the church of Jesus Christ. The church from my view in America, not just New Hope, the, the church in America is too weak right now to lead the way through cataclysm. And the responsibility is no one but ours. We must follow Jesus' invitation into deeper discipleship with him. Of all the factors in Germany that led to the horror of the 1930s and 40s, I see squarely in the middle a weak German church who neglected its primary role and prophetically refuting the powers of this dark world through the cross of Jesus Christ. 
because it's only the cross of Christ that truly refutes racism. Because of the cross, Paul writes in Galatians that there's now no longer slave nor free, male nor female, Jew nor Gentile, nor, nor anyone at all. We are one in Christ. The cross of Christ refutes racism. The cross of Christ refutes unconstrained militarism, believing that our military strength is the hope of the world. Because the cross of Christ is bound with Jesus who gave himself over to the violence of the empire so that the empire could be overturned. The cross of Christ refutes that. It is the cross of Christ that refutes oppressive governments. The Old Testament, you can see the minor prophets who would rise up to speak to kings and those in authority because they were missing the justice in the heart of God. And I was reading in Amos last week and the king said, go make your money somewhere else. And Amos said, I don't make my money from being a prophet. I speak for the living God. You are living, you are created, have created a tyranny. It is the cross of Christ that refutes oppressive government. It is the cross of Christ that refutes classism. It is only the cross of Christ who has given us this current day convention of believing that all people are created equal. That came because of the cross. It is the cross of Christ that refutes the idol of mammon, the idol of money, thinking that money is the world's solution. We've been saying that for years now. We think that the health of our country is based upon the strength or weakness of our economy. Is that true at all? No, the health of people depends on Jesus Christ alone. It is the cross of Christ who refutes unrestrained consumerism. Jesus who said, if you want life, you have to lose your life. But we live in a world that says you have to get more. Jesus says you have to give more. The cross of Christ refutes that. The cross of Christ refutes hatred because Jesus shows us the way of ultimate love. Greater love has no man than he who lays down his life for his friends. The cross of Christ refutes refutes unrestrained violence that besets our world. Why should there be no violence? It's the cross of Christ that elevates our hopes, that gives us a new expectation. This is the prophetic role of the church to stand as people strongly centered in Jesus Christ and his work so that we can carry a different vision for the world. Its refutation is not just standing against these powers, but also framing a basis for a worldview that brings God's true kingdom to earth. This is what I see. I see generations who come after us living in love with Jesus who would rather die for them than kill for them. I see generations who come after us who graciously laugh at the idols that we have chased. That they see, oh my gosh, they thought that was hope and they thought that was freedom and they're not disparaging us, but they're seeing the idols that we have such a hard time seeing. I see a generation to come who marries in holy union in the church before God, because of their devotion to Christ, their families are imbued with the humble love of Christ that is woven into their marriage bond. I see a generation to come that kneels before God in holy fear and reverence and dances before God in freedom and in love. None of this is possible 
None of this is possible without the church maintaining its role in this world. To be the people of God, bound and covenant to him and to each other. And this, I believe, is the choice that we have. We can hand our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren a weak church because of our weak commitment to it, or we can hand them a strong church because of our strong commitment to it. When we talk about this little book, I am a church member, and we talk about the role of the church in the world, I am not overselling the significance. And it is up to us, you and I, of whether or not the church will be strongly passed on or whether it will be weakly so. As I was praying and considering this message at this point in the message, I felt that we are supposed to take some time and pray. I front loaded this sermon with a little bit of a wake up call. There's things to wrestle through and to consider. Over the next few minutes, pray that your heart, that your spiritual eyes, your spiritual ears will be open to what God wants to say to you. And secondly, would you take some time to pray? Pray for our church, pray for the church in Salem, that we would continue to have the courage to lift up the gospel of Jesus Christ in face of all odds and circumstances. I'll give you the next few moments and then we'll move on.
Father, Son, Holy Spirit, show us, speak to us, strengthen us. We are interested in carrying out your work in the world. We need you to guide us. Amen. And so the significance of this little book, this little book reframes our attitudes, reframes our attitudes that keep the church weak in a largely consumeristic and convenience-driven culture the church is weak. In a day and age when, in which anything that is institutional is questioned, the church weakens. In a day of mistrust, the church weakens. And we hope to clarify for you this summer, what is the church and how do we interact with it? I believe that the Spirit is saying it cannot just be business as usual. The trajectory that we're on is needs to be corrected. Well, let's look at what scripture has to say. Jesus says to Peter, Peter was one of uh, Jesus' followers. He was called by Jesus to follow him and spent time traveling around and ministering with Jesus, seeing the way of the kingdom. At some point, Jesus asked all these followers, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're the Messiah, like you're the savior, you're the guy that we have been looking for. And Jesus affirms him. And in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says, you're blessed, Simon, son of John, because my father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. And then verse 18, Jesus says, now I say that you are Peter. So he renames <laughs> Simon, ah, gave you a new name. You are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. Jesus said, the powers of hell will not conquer the church. The church has been maligned throughout history, has been imperfect throughout history, but the powers of hell have not conquered it. But the powers of hell have conquered almost any other institution, any other system, any other ideology have been hijacked by the powers of hell, but the powers of hell will not overcome the what? The, the church, the gathered prophetic body that carries on the mission and the heart of Jesus. Jesus pledges to build this gathered community through Peter and the other apostles. Peter, the bumbling but earnest fisherman, joined by ex-tax collectors, joined by some women who came along later into the story, ex-terrorists, they were the zealots. <laughs> they joined Jesus, other blue-collared types. Jesus empowered his gathered community and audaciously pronounces in John 14, he says to this group, this gathered community, I tell you the truth, anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done and even greater works. And so Jesus came, not just as the figurehead of a religious organization, but he came and empowered people to take, to do even greater works than what he had done. 
And in Matthew 5, the recording of the Sermon on the Mount, these teachings that Jesus would regularly say, he's saying to this gathered community, he says, you are the salts of the earth. Salt, a preserving agent. He says, you are the preservative of what is good and what is right in the world. You, this, these peasants, these farmers, these, these people that were living day to day had no influence and power. And he says, you are the preserving agents. He says that to people that live in Silverton and Amity and Woodburn and Salem and Dallas, he says, you are the salts of the earth. But what good is salt if it's lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. And then he says, you, to these people, you're the light of the world. Like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. Jesus elsewhere calls, says that I am. He says, I am the light of the world. And now his expectation is those who believe in him and follow are the salt of the earth. We're the preserving agents and also each one of us. And then together we are the pillar of fire that leads the way through the darkness of this world. You are the light of the world. Jesus' expectation is that we would be the preserving agents in the world and that we would accomplish even, he would accomplish even greater things through us. And then he's teaching these things and it's so small and it's so unjust. And then he goes to the cross and he dies. And these people that had been listening to his words and maybe even gathering hope from them felt like all was lost. And he was just another messianic figure that could not fulfill his promises. But on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead and brought everybody's hopes back to life again. Because the thing that def could defeat anything, death, could not hold down Jesus Christ. And so he's resurrected from the dead. And in John 20, he shows up and he's among them. And he still has the wounds in his hands as he spoke. In John 20, verse 20, he showed them the wounds in his hands and his side. And they were filled with joy. And they saw the Lord. And again, he said, peace be with you. This is crazy. I know. Then he says this. And this is what is for all of us to hear. He says, just as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you as the light of the world, as the salt of the earth, you to be the gathered church upon which the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I am sending you. And then he breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit, which will empower you to this task. And then the book of Acts plays out and we see the birth of the imperfect church. A Christ follower is called to be sent into the world. We are, as Paul writes elsewhere, we are ambassadors of Christ. We carry with us this good news from our master that God is in a good mood, that he loves the world so much he sent his son to die so that we can have new life and live in a new trajectory. We, as the church, carry that message. Because of that, the church of Jesus Christ, the gathered church of Jesus Christ is the most important community on earth. Amen. What we do as we gather is the most important thing that we can do in our lives. It's small, it's week to week, and it feels like, oh, we have to be there today. What you are doing is prophetically stating that the message of Jesus resides in the church and you will participate not just on Sunday mornings as we'll discover, but how you give and how you serve the church. So this summer, we bring attention to our attitudes and our culture, the things that we wrestle with, our commitment 
to the church. And I would guess that there are going to be families who have their priorities upset by this, toppled over because the priorities have been one sum of idols and not true Jesus worship. We hope that you would follow us into deeper commitment to, to the role of the church in this world. Well, in this book, similar to the beginning of this sermon, Tom Rainer begins with some sober thoughts. He says in his introduction, and by the way, Tom Rainer is um, one of the leading Christian researchers in the country. He says, nine out of 10 churches in America are declining or growing at a pace that is slower than that of their communities. He says, they're losing ground in their own backyard. And then he goes on to say, about two-thirds of those born before 1946 are Christians. But only 15% of the millennials, those born between 1980 and 2000, are Christians. The millennials are the largest generation in America's history with almost 80 million members. And he says, we've all but lost that generation. Now, personally, I don't think that Jesus is done with the millennials. I don't think that at all. And so, let us all choose to stop the flippant, demeaning, demoralizing rhetoric about millennials. Yeah, the millennials are like, yeah, somebody say it. But rather, let's believe that God loves this generation. And he's calling us to continue to reach this generation. So if you're a millennial that's here and you're, you're resisting the draw of your culture to actually be a part of the organized church, I say, well done, you will not regret it. Now, before you get too freaked out about <laughs> the trajectory of things, the doomsday that this feels, let me suggest that there's always been significant ebbs and flows within church history times where God brings great revival and then there's the lull before the next revival. I believe we're at the end of that next lull. I believe that we are moving into a time where there'll be revival in the church. There'll be a time where there's a new generation unleashed upon the world carrying the mission of Jesus. That is my belief. But for example, some of the ebbs and flows that we don't naturally see or don't think actually existed. I've been reading a book called The Churching of America, and it's a sociological and research-based book that looks back at data from 1600 until the present day of church attendance in America. And he says this, these writers together say, nostalgia, it's not on the screen, so just listen, he says, nostalgia is the enemy of history. He said, says, no educated person any longer believes that the ancients were correct about a fall from the golden age. Yet we frequently accept equally inaccurate tales about more recent good old days. Tales that corrupt our understanding of the past and mislead us about the present. Americans are burdened with more nostalgic illusions about the colonial era than about any other period in their history. Our conceptions of the time are dominated by a few powerful illustrations of pilgrim scenes that most people over 40 stared at year after year on classroom walls. The baptism of Pocahontas, the pilgrims walking through the woods to church, and the first Thanksgiving. He goes on, had these classroom walls also been graced with colonial scenes of drunken revelry and barroom brawling, 
of women in risque ball gowns, of gamblers and rakes, a better balance might have been struck. For the fact is, is that there were never, there never were all that many Puritans, even in New England. Puritan, you know, strict, holy. And non-Puritan behavior abounded. For example, he gives a stat from 1761 through 1800, one third of all children were born out of wedlock despite harsh laws against fornication. He goes on, singles in New England during the colonial period were more likely to be sexually active than belong to a church. In 1776, only about one out of five New Englanders had a religious affiliation. That's what the data says. In other words, the church has always had its work cut out for it. (laughs) There's always been work to do. And we do not lay to live in some hopeless lament of the past, but rather live in a hopeful belief for the future. Jesus Christ says the powers of hell will not prevail against the church. But listen, being on mission for Jesus isn't for the window shopper. Instead, it's for the serious-minded worker. Often, People would say, Jesus, I want to follow you, but first I got to attend to all these other details, all these other things that are important in life. And Jesus says, nope, follow me today. Said to one guy, he wanted to honorably go back and bury his father. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. Today's the day if you want to follow me. And I think that that cry for the church is needed right now. That we need to elevate the call to commitment to Jesus and his mission. The stakes are high. And the Holy Spirit will empower us to do it. So the question is, who will do the work? It must be us. I've used this illustration before. I I love it. In the Lord of the Rings trilogy, Frodo is languishing under his assignment to carry the one ring to rule them all to Mount Doom. And speaking to Gandalf, he utters, I wish it needn't, need not have happened in my time, said Frodo. And Gandalf wisely replies, so do I, said Gandalf, and so do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time given us. And my friends, this is our time. This is our mission. This is where God sent us into 2018, into consumeristic, idol-worshiping America. And he's asking for us to take responsibility for our time, to take responsibility for the next generation and the generations to come, to not be satisfied with status quo, but believe that the church will rise again. So how? That's what the book starts to address. The book addresses the key in chapter one to being a functional church in the world at large. And really it's all about our attitude toward the local church. I believe that our participation must reach new levels of commitment and sacrifice if we are to carry out this mission. Rainier in chapter one takes us right to the point. He says, in our consumeristic culture, we view church participation falsely. 
And this way, he writes, it's on the screen, membership in this false view, we incorrectly think membership is about receiving instead of giving. That coming to the church is about what the church can do for me. Well, that church has a good preacher, but that church has a good youth ministry, and that church has a good coffee bar, and that church has a nice parking lot, and that church is really cool, and all the cool people do. And that church, they have skinny jeans, and they wear ripped jeans, and that church, yeah, I mean. <laughs> but do you understand? We treat it like Walmart. We're picking and choosing. What is, what is the least I can give to get the most out of it? That's membership about receiving instead of giving, being served instead of serving, rights instead of responsibilities. By the way, I was just talking with another pastor and he says the Hebrew language, which the Old Testament was written in, has no word for rights. It's all responsibilities. We have this word rights as in I deserve intrinsically all these things, but rather what we have as a Christ follower is a bunch of responsibilities that are accompanied by the blessing of the Lord not a bunch of rights that we need to maintain. Responsibilities and entitlements instead of sacrifices. He says, this wrongful view of membership sees the tithes and offerings as membership dues that entitle members to a never-ending list of privileges and expectations instead of an unconditional cheerful gift to God. I've had a few people over the years being a pastor who kind of pulled the tithe card. Well, I give so much. And I said, I don't care. I'm glad if you give sacrificially with the right heart. But if you're trying to leverage me right now, uh-uh. It's not going to happen. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, Gary knows what I'm saying. Okay. He argues that if we're to reverse this, there's four things in this chapter that he, he argues for. He says, if we're to reverse this, we must live out what biblical church membership is all about. Four things. Number one, church membership means, biblical church mem membership means we are all necessary parts of the whole. That this isn't the Isaac show and the Brett show and then a few others that are doing all the things, but we need everybody to take ownership of their responsibility. Everybody is necessary. He goes at length to talk about 1 Corinthians 12 and that we are the body of Christ and the foot can't say to the hand, I don't need you. The nose can't say to the ear that we are all needed. We are all connected. The leg bone connected to the hip bone. Do you like how I, I hipped that? Yeah, right there. We're all necessary. You may not know how you fit in. Can I suggest that you keep trying? Can I, can I suggest that you need not wait for the perfect place to serve, but jump at any chance that you get? You, we live in a day of self-actualization. I love this. It's like you become who the you is to be, to be. And that is the highest value of you being you. And we take them to the church and like, what's the, I'm looking for my place around here. And we're saying, get involved with children's ministry. Get involved with the next generation. It takes 40 to 60 volunteers a week to make that happen. Get involved there. Serve the next generation. Don't sit around waiting for, am I called to be this or that? You're called to be a Christ follower. That's what you're called to be. Amen. You're called to be a, one who sacrifices, who gives yourself away. That's what you're called to be. These are all the children's ministry people right now. They're like, yes. <laughs> Say it, brother. Go get it. Yeah. Mitch, you know what I'm talking about. That's right, yeah. <laughs> we will, you'll be hearing more about this this summer, but Rooted is a discipleship opportunity you have that will help you discover more of your purpose. 
Help me discover more of who you are. We want you to know who you are. So I encourage you already to be thinking about Rooted, which by the way, will require something of you. It will require taking an evening, a week, out of your busy schedule and committing to a discipleship process. It'll require you to do daily um, devotions, following the plan, 45 of them all said and done, I think. It's intensive. We're elevating the expectation. To be a Christ follower means we're gonna have to give ourselves totally over to it if we want to carry out the mission of the church. So more opportunities and doors will be opened as you go through Rooted. Number two, Rainer says, biblical church membership means we are all different, but we still work together. We are all different. The body of Christ should be very diverse. About a year ago, upon an awareness that not everybody in our congregation has the same political views, I received this email. They said, we cannot attend. It would be, I quote, it would be too difficult to associate with these people. <laughs> That's what they said. I don't think they would have liked being a disciple of Jesus. They were walking around as a disciple, and can you imagine? There's Levi the tax collector walking around, and he's like extort, had been extorting money and been in cahoots with the Roman Empire. And then there's Simon the Zealot, who was a terrorist that was that was doing acts of violence against the Roman Empire. And they're looking across from the small group, you know, like, hey, let's pray together before we go out and minister. And probably just like, I don't like you and I don't like you. I don't think these people would have been comfortable with the disciples either. We are going to be a diverse community and we have to learn how to do that. Our culture is not doing that for us. It is saying, you're over there and you're over there and you lob grenades at them and you lob grenades at them and you be mad at each other and let's go for it on Facebook. <laughs> But we are called to be the prophetic community that says it is Jesus Christ who unifies us. To really live out, there's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave, nor free, male, nor female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Amen. Alpha is designed for you. If you struggle with that, you might be new to faith or outside of faith. Alpha will help you with that. Also, Alpha for the Christ follower will teach you how to interact with people who think very differently than you. Actually, to become friends with them to have respectful conversation with them. I think our whole culture should go through alpha. <laughs> to meet Jesus and learn how to talk nicely to each other. I, I'm concerned for us. And I'm gonna talk about this over the next year. As we go to the next political cycle, is this gonna heat up in about six months? I'm really concerned for our culture. And we need to be the prophetic voice that says there's a different way that we treat each other. We can disagree even vehemently with each other and still be a part of the same church. In Cottage Grove, where I pastored before, we had all kinds of people coming to know Jesus from all sides of the political spectrum, and it was really interesting. And on one day, we had a church cleaning day, and so we gather on a Saturday, everybody to come to the church, bring your yard equipment, come on, let's clean up the church. And so I had my friend who had just come to know Jesus about a year before, and he was kind of redneck, good old, you know, Cottage Grove boy, pulled up in his jacked up pickup, and he jumps out, and he pulls out his backpack full of Roundup, puts on his back, starts going away at the weeds. And then another woman who had just come to know Jesus in our church drives up in a little Subaru, jumps up with the trowel in her hand, sees the roundup and goes after him. And it's like, rah, 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 like this. And I said, Jesus, this is the kind of church I want to be a part of because you're the only one that's going to unify us. <laughs> the 
both had a leg to stand on, but their biggest leg to stand on is Jesus Christ. Hmm. We are different, but we will still work together. I look forward to you being uncomfortable because you find yourself in a conversation with a liberal, with a conservative, with a millennial. Because there's something that's going to come in you. And outside of a homogenized environment, you are faced with your desperate need for Jesus to lead you and his total willingness to be that force in your life. This is largely contingent upon Rainer's third point. He says, biblical church membership means that everything we say and do is based on a biblical foundation of love. True biblical love provides the large platform of grace needed for divergent views to exist and work together. This doesn't mean we don't have strong views about the truth of Jesus and what the gospel means and its ramifications for our lives. But it does mean that there's a lot of grace for each other. He points out how 1 Corinthians 13, which is kind of the love chapter in the Bible, you hear it at weddings, love is patient, love is kind. How sweet this cursive is as I write this card. You know, it's, it's, it's really sweet. But 1 Corinthians 13 wasn't about romantic love. It wasn't about husband and wife love. It's fine for it to be applied there. It certainly, it certainly applies. Anybody want to say to your spouse sometimes, love is patient, and I'm losing it right now, yeah. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 12, and a lot of 1 Corinthians is about church dysfunction. In the church, there's arguments, and they're out of order, and they don't know how to get along together. And Paul comes to the end of 1 Corinthians 12. He's talking about the body of Christ, and he says, you know what? This is all based on love. You can have all these gifts, and you can do all these things, and you can sound really great, and you can have an amazing spiritual show, but if you don't have love, you have nothing, Amen. is what he says. And then he goes on to describe what that is. It's in the context of the church a place where bitternesses need to be dissolved because of the cross of Christ, where forgiveness of ourselves and forgiveness towards others, forgiveness of pastors can be the fulcrum, the pivot point of us continuing to move forward. And finally, he says, the fourth point he makes, biblical membership is functioning membership. In other words, it's not static. It's not a thing where, oh yeah, I am a part of New Hope, but I don't really participate other than showing up every once in a while. It's where I have a function and I know my role and I carry it out in that body. And I've, I've done the hard work of discovering what that is and I serve and I'm part of that. I'm part of what God is doing through New Hope and beyond. It's functioning membership. Rainer comments in this section, he says, I think it's on the screen here. It says, do you know how to remain a biblical member of a church? He boils it down. Give abundantly and serve without hesitation. This is based upon what Jesus has done for us. He's given us all. He served without hesitation so that we can be people that give our all and serve without hesitation so others may know Jesus Christ and his love for them. At the end of each one of these chapters, there's a pledge that he invites you to make. I just want you to know this is between you and 
in the Lord. This is not something we're collecting. We're not taking account of who has said this or not, but I would encourage you to wrestle with each of these and to sign it and date it if you're willing to take the plunge of what true biblical membership is. This first one at the end of this chapter, he says, this is the pledge. I like the metaphor of membership. It's not membership as, a, as in a civic organization or a country club. It's the kind of membership given to us in 1 Corinthians 12, quote, now you are the body of Christ and individual members of it, end quote. Because I am a member of the body of Christ, I must be a functioning member. Whether I'm an eye, an ear, or hand, as a functioning member, I will give, I will serve, I will minister, I will evangelize, I will study, and I will seek to be a blessing to others. I will remember that if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. And an invitation to sign and date. So here we go. Imagine if we all together started refuting the lies of this world by, by prioritizing the church. What if going into next fall, there was an outpouring of power and expectation because we all took deeper steps to invest and to be available? What if we were all giving generously, obediently to the Lord? What if we could hire not just a half-time children's pastor ministering to our over 100 kids every week? What if we could afford not just a half-time youth pastor? What if we could afford a full-time children's pastor investing into the next generation? A full-time youth pastor investing into the next generation? What if the assignment of New Hope is to be a key player in preparing the next generation to be a refuting prophetic community? What if the leaders of the next Christian resistance like Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Germany who did stand up to the Nazi regime, what if the leaders are right now here in our children's ministry and God has entrusted them to us? Our youth ministry what if the next great preacher of the next generation is being raised up in our church? Maybe growing in a mother's womb right now. I say, let's be a church for the ages. Let's be a church that on that day when Jesus welcomes us into the eternal kingdom, where he says, he looks at you and he says, now where are all those other New Hope people? Gather them together so I can commend you all and say to you all as a collective whole, well done, thy good and faithful servants. You stood up, you worked harder, you dug deeper to see the kingdom come in Salem, Oregon and beyond. Let's be that kind of church. Let's be that kind of church that is a prophetic community in the world the light and the salt of Jesus Christ carried on in the world. Do you want to be that kind of church? If you want to be that kind of church, would you stand right where you are? If that's what you are saying, that's the kind of church that you want to be a part of. And I want you to look all across this room. Look at these people that are standing with you, that are willing to be like the, the boy who had a few fish and a few loaves and they brought it to Jesus. That's, that's you. We'd all have so little, 
But as we all give our part, we will see his kingdom come because the gate of hell will not prevail against the church. It's so appropriate that we receive communion as we close today. Brett and the team are gonna lead us in worship and there's a communion station here, the bread and the, element, the, and the juice over here as well and then also one in the back. As they lead us in worship, we invite you to take and receive of that. And as you reflect today, I encourage you, reflect on Jesus, his death, not just for you, but for the church, giving his body over sacrificially for the church. His blood poured out so you can be forgiven, but also so that you can extend that forgiveness to everyone you meet. So they'll lead us in worship and reflect a little bit. You'll receive communion. We'll worship together. And then Brett and the team will dismiss us here in just a moment. Father, thank you for sending your son to show us that greater love has no man than he who lays down his life for another. Thank you for laying your life down. Help us to be those who also, in turn, lay our lives down. We bless your name. In Jesus' name. Come, receive, take, and worship.